Hi, everybody, and welcome to another Robcast. I'm here with David Kessler, who is an expert on grief, dying, loss, everything from the loss of a loved one to what happens when we die on this side of death to infertility to divorce to, I mean, the things that you've written about. It's just extraordinary. And you all know I love to hunt down fascinating people and then learn everything I can with them. And we usually turn a microphone on because it's always more fun when more people are involved. So, David. Thank you so much for coming. Great to be here. Great to be here. It's just an honor. Uh, I know you've written books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who I studied in college. Um, those of you who studied like the five stages of grief and loss, um, then then you are in some way familiar with David's work already. But I have a thousand questions, but I'll just start with, and probably the question for everybody listening, how do you become like the world expert on grief and death? Well, yeah, it's like, you know, you're not a third grader going, hey, I, I want to be the grief expert. Um, I had a mother who had had a kidney removed uh, before I was born. So I grew up going in and out of hospitals. I sort of knew the medical world. Then when I was 13, she got really sick, had to go to the hospital in the big city, which was New Orleans. We're there. She gets this new treatment called dialysis, which back then the bioethicists voted she could have one treatment, which we know now would do nothing. My father can't afford a hotel, so we're sleeping in the hospital lobby. Day and night, it's the ICU she's in. You can only go up five minutes every two hours. And you have to be 14, and I'm 13. So most of the nurses are fine. They're sneaking me in, no big deal. Of course, there's always the one nurse that's like, nope, rules are rules, right? So the crazy thing is we have a lot of downtime in this hospital lobby. There's nowhere to go around. There's no stores. There's no coffee shop. There's nothing. We're sleeping there day and night. The only place around is the hotel across the street that my father can't afford. So out of our boredom in the hospital lobby, we go sit in the hotel lobby. Just for the change of another lobby. We're in the hotel lobby, and all of a sudden, someone starts screaming, fire. Everyone rushes out. There's a fire. I look up, 18th floor. There's this huge fire. So fire trucks are coming up. I'm a 13-year-old boy. This is really cool that this is happening. I've been bored in a hospital. So fire trucks pull up, ladder goes up. All of a sudden, shooting begins. They realize this isn't a fire. This is a sniper. So then they rush everyone back into the hotel. Turns out there's a sniper who's shooting people. This goes on for 13 hours. If you want to see my whole childhood, you can go New Orleans Sniper 1973 YouTube. As a kid, police, shooting, fire, it's adventure. As a 13-year-old boy, I thought this was kind of cool. I didn't know the ramifications. Seven people were killed, three police officers. My father eventually gets us back to the hospital. We're in the hospital. Uh, get up. There's that nurse, the one who won't let me in the next day. She won't let me in. Turns out that's the day my mother dies. So I don't get to see my mother the day she dies. On the end of the day, I'm on my first plane ride. What do you do with the kid whose mother died that day and is on his first plane ride? You let him ride in the cockpit and tell him he's flying the plane. That'll be fun and enjoyable. I thought I was going to crash it. I was so freaked out I was going to crash the plane. So talk about all these mixed emotions that I went mm -hmm. through as a child. And I, I grew up to be this 
hybrid that's, uh, you know, involved with police work and aviation disasters and death and dying and all that. And I realized I'm a product of those days. That's what put me on this trajectory. I knew that this was done poorly and I could make this better for other people. Ah, it's so interesting to me how many people, when you see them doing what they're doing, you think they're, this is what they're here for and you start going back in their story, the seeds. Right, right. Are, you can see the seeds way back early. Right. So you go to school, you train, you... I do, I end up in hospice, working in hospice. And uh, for those who don't know what hospice is, that is... So hospice is a delivery care of health care that nurses, physicians, they go out to your home, social workers, and help you in the last six months to year of life. All paid for by Medicare, your insurance. It's a great underutilized resource we have in this country. If you've had a loved one who's dying, there's a good chance they were on hospice. And we're trying today to move people out of the hospital into homes and give it more personal care mm -hmm. and hospice is great at doing that and you are spending your days with people whose days are numbered well all our days are numbered really numbered really numbered they've and you know they've gotten the envelope. this brings you life it brings me life it brings me healing it brings me purpose and so i'm doing that and i end up here in los angeles and um i get introduced to this woman named marianne williamson Sure. She's not written a book or anything at this time. We become buds. There's no one in the world like Marianne. I'll tell you That's one. That's true. I can attest to that. I'll tell you. So, right. Then there's this third friend we have, Louise Hay. She's in religious science. She's got no book or anything. Well, she actually had a pamphlet at the time. So then the AIDS crisis hit. And it was sort of all hands on deck. So Marianne started doing groups, Louise was doing groups, I was doing groups, and we'd all do each other's groups and work together and do events and fundraisers. And, you know, we were um, really sort of became fast friends then. But thing I was gonna tell you about Marianne, Marianne wanted to start this nonprofit, Project Angel Food here in town. And I, I you know, had a bit of a business background and I was like, Marianne, do you have a business plan? What do you got? She's got no, I have a dream. I'm like, well, a dream's not, I'm going to pray to God. Oh, Marianne, that's not going to get you anywhere. And so she keeps moving in this path. And I'm like, Marianne, I can't do this with you. It's too far out. No one starts a new charity. And we have this big argument, really intense argument, like really early on in the friendship. And at the end of the argument, I said, clearly, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> and she says to me, David, with this much energy, clearly we are. And I'm like, oh, that's a different mindset. So we've been great friends ever since. My, you know, I'm godfather to her daughter, and she's godmother to my sons. Extraordinary. So this is mid '80s. Mid '80s. And and the AIDS. I mean, I remember. I mean, that was only a, I was probably in high school, but that was just devastating. It sort of came out of nowhere. It was like ways. being in a war zone. Being in a war zone. And what were you doing? You were helping people grieve, helping people No, die. I had a hospice. Okay. So I ended up starting my own hospice and were caring for people. And so I was doing the medical part uh, and had um, over 100 nurses working in the agency that I had started. And, um, you know, there were social workers and we were helping people stay at home. And Marianne and Louise were doing the spiritual part. And we all became good friends back then. And in the trenches together, sort of. And I assume you're with a lot of people when they're breathing their last breath. 
Correct. That's happening for you daily? Not anymore, but there I mean, was a time, time. Yes, time daily. Really daily. Daily dying every weekend, two to three funerals. That was just your life back then for all of us. For years. For a few years, for a few years. Marianne and Louise were so amazing about someday this is going to be manageable. There's a cure. There's resources we haven't found. I was a little more not sure about it. Ah, so you saw AIDS like cancer. I saw, yeah, we're going to be stuck with this forever. People are going to keep dying. But they held on to that light. Thank goodness. And how does it affect, how did it affect you to be around that much death? Um, I, I, I think it made me realize we are not here forever. You better make the most out of this life. And I was aware just from my hospice background, not AIDS, but I was really acutely aware people die. If it's not AIDS, it's going to be something. And your time is precious here and do something with it. So it, it, it created within you a, trem uh, a tremendous value and sort of power to life because you saw how quickly it's over. Correct. And then uh, at a certain point in my career, obviously like you, like everyone, I studied Kubler-Ross. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is having um, AIDS is now becoming manageable. Thank goodness. Kubler-Ross is having uh, there's a big event in Egypt all about death and dying. Huge conference in Egypt. So Kubler-Ross is the, the star of that. I'm like, I'm going to go see her in Egypt. This is going to be amazing. A death and dying conference. In Egypt. A giant gathering to talk about death and dying. In Egypt. And Kubler-Ross is the keynote. Marianne's going, it's a big deal. We're all signed up. Kubler-Ross has her stroke and she can't make it. So I knew the organizer. I was like wallpaper. She was the star, all that. But I knew the organizer when we got back home. I mean, it was still a wonderful conference. We get back home and I say to the organizer, I'm chatting with her one day. Hey, how's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She goes, I don't know. We need to talk to her. It's so awkward. I, we don't know how to have these conversations. I go, well, how is she? We don't know. God, we can't call. And I went, well, I'll call. I'll call her. Who's, who are you talking to? Her son? Who? Her son. Here's his number. Yeah, if you call, that's great. I call her son. He said, she's getting better. Here's her number. Call her up. So I call up Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And, you know, I said I was going on your Egypt trip. So sorry you had the stroke. She's like, how was it? We had this amazing phone conversation, you know, found out the stuff I needed for the agency and all that. Done with the conversation. I said to her at the end of the conversation, so great talking to you. Sorry I didn't get to meet you. I hope our paths cross someday. And she goes, how about Tuesday? And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, sure. I can make Tuesday work. And so I went and I met with her in her home, post her stroke. She was paralyzed at the time. And I go there. And she's a legend. She's a legend. Are you intimidated? Completely. <laughs> completely. Now, let me tell you what an idiot I am. But it was like fun idiot. I go in, Kubler-Ross, this legend, this icon. I say to her in our first meeting, first of all, she goes, I want to sniff you. I'm like, excuse me? She goes, I want to sniff you. I go, what do you mean? She goes, just come close. I can smell phony balonies. And I went, okay. And she goes, uh, well, sit down. Let's just see. I'm like, okay. So I'm intimidated enough without being smelled and everything else, right? So then I say to her in the conversation, is there anything I can do for you? 
I'm great advanced directives. Do you need anything medical done? Is there a conversation you need to have? Or, you know, do you, I'm like talking death and dying with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? I'm trying to have some credibility. And she says to me, you want to help? And I said, oh, I'd love to help you. She goes, change my air filters. I'm like, what? She goes, my air filters in the house need changing. Go change them. I'm like, well, that's not exactly what I do. And she goes, oh, I thought you were here to help. And I said, enough said. And I go and change your air filters. She told me later that was a test. Because this is, the, this is somebody who spent her life studying life itself and the loss of life and death. And to find out whether you're serious, it's not about big esoteric ideas of what happens when you die. It's Correct. about can you be present with somebody in their pain and actually attend to their real needs. Correct. And she also was very angry at the time and didn't phase me. I always make a joke. I'm Jewish. I know anger. That didn't phase me. So she was very <laughs> angry at the time. And she also told me years later that I came along when a lot of her friends were leaving because the anger really made them uncomfortable. She was angry that she was going to die? No. Kubler-Ross had always said in life, let me get hit by a truck when my time comes. Oh. Let me get like the most aggressive cancer. When my time comes, I want to leave quickly. She said, nothing slow like a stroke. And of course, the universe gave her a stroke. Because if you spend your days with people who are dying, you naturally begin to think about your own death. Right. And she probably saw, like you, I assume, tons of long, slow, protracted struggles right. and thought anything but that. Right. And then that's what came her way. So then, you know, we went on to have this great friendship, which turned into us writing a book together, Life Lessons. I even said to her at one point in Life Lessons, I said, uh, Life Lessons was about all the lessons you can learn from people mm -hmm. who are dying for us to apply them while we're young. So uh, I say to her, um, uh, Elizabeth, you got a lot of criticism for being angry when you had your stroke. What do you think about that? And she goes, oh, people love my stages. They just didn't want me to be in one. And I think that was true. We didn't want her to have an angry death. And luckily, she didn't. And part part of the stages of any healthy response is a stage of anger. Correct. So the stages yep. are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Now, the thing we would tell you right off, they don't have to be linear. It's not a map for you to follow. Uh, some people are never in denial. Some people are never in anger. Some people never find acceptance. Our grief is as unique as our fingerprint. Mm. The other thing is, we're talking about grief. But it's not really about grief. It's really about change, the changes in our life. How do we adjust to the changes in our life? Death is, of course, the biggest. But breakups, divorce, all those are changes that we didn't want. Now, there's changes that happen all the time. We have good grief over things mm -hmm. that happen. But you don't sort of need help with the good grief. It's when it's the change you don't want that we sometimes need help. And where do most people get stuck? What do, what you're doing a you're doing an event somewhere and people can ask you any question about grief and dying. What are the what are the two or three questions you always the universal questions everybody's asking? The universal questions are um, I'm trying to get rid of this grief and I can't get rid of it. I'm trying to get past it and I can't get past it. We want a way out of it around it and the only way is through it. 
you know, you can't heal what you don't feel. So you got to allow yourself to feel the grief. You know, a woman said to me the other day, I've been, you know, I had this husband for 40 years and he died and I'm just, I'm trying to get through the grief and I'm trying every, and you know, and I went, you're really resisting the grief. You haven't given yourself to it. So that's a big thing is we sort of just don't let ourselves feel it. We're in a get over it society. The quick way through it is to feel it. Just allow yourself to feel it. Um, I think that's we also compare griefs, which is the worst grief. The death, the breakup, the young person, the old person. Grief is a no-judgment zone. You don't want to go into comparison. That sends you down a bad path. Uh, the thing that you are feeling is the thing that you are feeling. And Correct. it has nothing to do with what that person felt or what that person... And that person who looks like they got through it just fine and you wonder why you're still stuck in it, they may they may just be in denial. Right. <laughs> I mean, they may be bearing things. Who knows about their story? Right. And you notice a lot of people compare their experience to others and get stuck and decide they're not grieving right you just feel it just be with it have a friend witness it i was just doing a tour in australia and it was so interesting on the lecture tour um, a woman says to me at a lecture how she went to this village and one of the things i always say in my lecture is grief must be witnessed we need one other person to witness our grief not be an island so this lady at my lecture, she says she goes to this small village. In this village, she tells me how when a person dies that night, everyone in the village has to very obviously move something in their home or their lawn. And I was like, what's that about? And she said, for the family to wake up the next morning after their loved one has died and go out into the village and see everything has changed. Oh. That's how we witness. Think of it in America here. What do we feel in America? When my loved one dies, when I'm in a breakup or divorce, my whole world has been shattered. And all of you go about your business like nothing's Does anybody happened. see this? Does, Does anybody anyone know? see my right, pain? Right. So part of what my work is, I see your pain. I'm going to give you permission to grieve. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that people don't realize about this, and Louise and I really got into this in the book, is when you allow yourself to grieve, that pain is going to come up, but so are your old wounds. And so grief not only becomes a time to heal from the loss, but to go back and heal those old wounds, those old negative patterns. Grief becomes an amazing time of healing. Mm. It's an incredible window that we miss. A friend of mine, uh, uh, he has this theory that when Princess Diana died, and Buckingham Palace, somebody put flowers in front of the gate and then more flowers and more flowers and then it exploded with flowers. And he says it's because we all have things that we haven't grieved that we're carrying around. And that becomes a trigger. And, and so Princess Diana, Robin Williams... Correct. ...becomes the trigger, Amy Winehouse, for all of this latent, unexpressed... Correct. ...grief. Correct. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And so that's why when people say things like, I'm so sad about Robin Williams and I loved his movies or his show, but I didn't really know him. Why am I grieving for someone I never know, knew? Or I'm grieving like I lost my best friend, even though I never met them. It's because it triggered all of these things they're carrying around. And let's discuss the trigger. The trigger is grief is a reflection of a connection that has been lost. Grief is a reflection of a connection. Notice I didn't say positive connection. It can be a negative connection. 
And I didn't say you met the person. It's a reflection of a connection. So if I feel connected to Robin Williams, connected to Princess Diana, I will grieve them. And then the underlying question is, what about Robin Williams connected with you? And that will lead you usually to your own grief about something else that you haven't felt. And I'm, so someone's grieving him because they're grieving something in their own Or there was something about that connection that resonated with them. So if you think about grief as a connection, then you get down to, oh, we grieve those we love. We grieve those we like. We grieve those we don't like. We grieve those we hate. Mm -hmm. We don't grieve people we're indifferent to. Right. I never knew that lady on, you know, the fifth floor. So you don't grieve her. Right. But you will grieve the father who abused you. You also have to go back and grieve that archetype of the ideal father. You didn't get this lifetime. You have to grieve what never was. Uh, it isn't just... It isn't just the grief of the harm that person did to you. It's the grief of the loss of what you had hoped for or... Deserved. Never, you deserved a great right. father this lifetime. You deserved a great and mother, but that didn't get it. You didn't get that father. And one of the things that I work with people on is people go, why me? So when I have um, a lecture, I might say, what did you get in this lifetime? What'd you get? In your childhood, what'd you get? Someone got abused, someone's else house burned down, someone's brother was killed. I mean, everyone got something. I have yet to sit with someone who goes, no perfect life, got nothing. Everything's been perfect. Mm-hmm. So everyone eventually gets something. It's not why you, why not you? In this lifetime, my mother died, your sister got abused. I don't know why, but we all get something. That seems to be the plan. Now, now you you grew up. You're Jewish. Mm-hmm, How did your were you practicing? Were you? No, I was raised much more spiritual than religious. I mean, I've certainly gone on to study now what I didn't get as a child and all that. But and and when you went on to study, how did your study of uh, spirituality, God, how did that inform your work? I think what ended up resonating most with me was religious science and Course in Miracles. Oh, and and I didn't like this idea that there was this one God who made the people that worshipped him right. And everyone else was sort of outside the room. Right, there's a small club. There's a small club, and luckily you're in it because you believe this. And all the people who believe there's a small club happen to be in it. Correct, correct. What an interesting coincidence. And and so I really looked into a lot of religions when I was young to try to find out who I am, what I believe. Right, right. And I eventually loved Course in Miracles Religious Science that said, you know, God doesn't have an ego. He doesn't care if you call him Jesus, God, Buddha, mashed potatoes. He's about love. And that seemed to resonate with me. And you are in your work and your life experiences. You are in this extraordinary, vast array of situations with people from all different sorts of backgrounds who, who need your presence to walk with them in their final moments. So, so all of it grounded in love was a very real Absolutely. practice for you. And that's what I see at the end of life. What matters is love. What matters is love. You know, Kubler-Ross used to talk about when we die, we'll have a life review, but not a life review in the first person, 
but a life review in the third person. I get to feel how I treated you. I get to feel how I was to other people. So everything that I put out, I will feel again. Oh, I've often, when people have said, uh, you know, what about judgment? I said, if you think about judgment as full disclosure, um, judgment, people are like, I don't believe in judgment, but you do like the truth. Right. <laughs> you do right. find the truth helpful. Right. And even the most painful moments when your own uh, darkness is exposed, there's something refreshing and refining about that. Right. And if you think about judgment as full disclosure of this is who I am and this is who I have been. It's painful, and you sort of wince and cringe, but there's also a cleansing transparency to that. And that truth circles us back to acceptance. I'm helping people accept that breakup. I'm helping you accept the divorce. The problem is, you know, we talk about pain is inevitable in this life. Suffering is optional. You Where are, pain is inevitable. Suffering, suffering is optional. Oh, that's so. I need you to explain it, but it's so good. I know, I know. So here, <laughs> let me walk you through it. I can't take away the pain of a divorce. You were married 20 years. I can't take away that pain. I'm going to help you grieve it. Suffering is what your mind's going to do with it. Your mind's going to go, now I'm bad. Now I'm unlovable. Now there's no one for me. Now I'm too old. That's what causes the suffering. That's the work I do with you on your old patterns to change that so that you can feel that loss, but not let it feed these old patterns that now grow and become permanent. The the pain of your loved one dying is going to be painful. What's your mind going to do with it? Let me give you another example about death. People go, okay, I see how my mind can turn on me after a breakup and divorce and tell me I'm unlovable, I didn't deserve them, of course, everyone leaves. We gotta go back and figure out what those patterns are. But back to my story. When my mother died when I was young, if you would have seen me then, horribly abandoned, horrible victim. And if I, and I did see therapists, if I'd saw a therapist at 20 or whatever, you would go, well, of course he's abandoned. His mother died, he had that horrible situation. I realized eventually in my own work, abandonment was what my mind did. My mother didn't abandon me. My mother died. My mind turned that into abandonment. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a victim. My mind did that. I can be a victor over this loss. Uh, There's a a difference between my mother died and she left Abandonment, right. That's what my mind did. The young mind after death is often distorted. And so we all have these distortions. Part of my grief work is to one, where did that idea when your husband left you, you're you're never going to love again? Where did that come from? Where did your unworthy come from? Where did there's no one out there come from you? That came from a wound. Let's go back and look at that wound. Because I don't just want you to heal from the grief. I want you to heal from the grief and come out the other side that you've gotten rid of some of those old wounds. Right, right. There is the there is the grief, and then there is your mind that wants to wander all over the place. And it's almost bringing it home. Stop going there. It's not and fascinating. If you wow. saw two people, one in grief, and the other one turned to their friend and said, "Look at you. Just look at you. You're having a pity party. You're so worthless. No wonder why they left. No wonder why they died." We'd go, "Excuse me. Don't talk to her that way. She's in horrible grief. She needs kindness and gentleness." We would never let anyone talk to you that way. 
but yet you talk to yourself that way. We are cruelest to ourselves in grief. Oh, which is why it's so hard for people to forgive themselves. Yeah, you're sitting there telling yourself, you're grieving wrong, no wonder he left, no wonder she died. All that stuff. You've got to stop that. Ah, uh, it's, the, it's the tapes that play in the head. Wow. Right. So a lot of your work is this distinction between the, the pain and the suffering. Suffering, correct. And when you make that distinction for a number of people, oh. And then you feel that oh, pain. Oh, got it. Then yeah. you feel that pain. But then you can't move on, you get stuck. That's the suffering. Oh, that's the suffering. Extraordinarily helpful. Now, I noticed um, aviation disasters. That's from me as a child. Right, exactly. Being worried about crashing the plane. And later, then, so they bring you in. Correct. When there's a plane crash. Correct. To work with the families, to the survivors, to work with. Correct. I've done aviation disasters, crime scenes, murders, all of that. All over the world, in America, L.A., where does Usually you here in, in, in the U.S. But I mean, you know, like when there's a plane crash, there's three sites. There's where it was taking off from, where it was landing, and where it then landed. So you can be dispatched to any of them. And what does that, when, when did that, I mean, so that would be where? Like, tell us about a time when you get a call saying there's been a crash. Singapore Airlines crash. Singapore Airlines um probably a couple decades ago now, but it was a big one. It was a 747, went down the wrong runway, headed for LA at night, took off the wrong runway, under construction, bulldozer hits, the bulldozer goes up in flames, half the people die, half survive. So it was headed to LA, so I was going to be here to meet some of the survivors. So that was an interesting process because they had had to, you know, watch the what happens with their loved ones and, you know, watch their loved ones die. So part of what you're doing is just helping them stay safe. They're just such a vulnerable place. You're helping the survivors at that point stay safe. The other thing is I remember from that crash, there was one man who I was meeting him. Uh, He was coming in on another plane. He was a survivor. He didn't have anyone that had died in the crash. He landed. I said to him, uh, the press is outside. We have another way you can leave the L.A. airport. And he goes, why is the press here? I don't understand what that's about. And I said, it was a horrible 747 accident. It's huge news. That's why. And he goes, I think I want to walk out the way I came in. My car's in the parking lot. I said, okay, you'll go through the press. That's fine. He went through the press. Someone said to him, they were asking him a question. He goes, I don't get why this is a big deal. And they said, because you lived. Because you lived. Mo- a reporter shouts that back. Because you lived, yes. Uh. Most of us think we wake up in the morning because our alarm clock went off, the sun came up, we've got an internal alarm clock, the kids, the dog, we've got a reason why we woke up. I can tell you, this morning, people's alarm clock went off and they did not wake the dog jumped on the bed and they did not wake. Hmm. Plenty of people didn't wake this morning. Your life is not an accident. You are alive for a reason. God didn't go, well, they just keep waking up every morning. I don't know how it works. I don't know what these kids are doing. Right. (laughs) If you woke up this morning, there's a reason. That's your job. What's the reason you woke up? Why are you here? And your and it doesn't have to be grand. You don't, you know, you don't have to change the world. You might be just the great friend, the the parent, 
the coworker. It doesn't have to be like, you know, you're on TV. It can just be you're someone who shifts the world just by who you are. It's so interesting to me. Like you talk about a death and dying conference in Egypt being at the site of major plane wreckage, walking with people through the AIDS crisis. If I would, I assume for many of my people listening, like David is here, he's an expert on grief and dying. For many people, you know what I mean? Cultural perceptions are, wow, this is going to be a lot of fun. And yet you're like exploding with life. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what happens. You you live your life fully. I mean, people come to my conferences and they walk away going, I'm shocked at how much I laughed. You know, they're often in hotels and the hotel will go, what was your conference? They were laughing so much. Grief. Really? (laughs) Grief, death and dying. Right. Breakups, divorce, all that. Yeah. You can't do it without humor. Yeah. Yeah. And no one has more fun than me. I mean, you have to. Believe me, if you were a personal friend of mine, we would not be off having deep conversations about death. Right. We would be right. off having amazing lives. Right, right, right. Once in a while, my friends, someone will go, I'll go, oh, I can't. I got to go to CNN. They call me, CNN, what, what? I go, well, something happened. Someone died. And they're like, why you? My friends forget <laughs> what I do because we're just not in the death world. That's my work. Yeah. You know, I started out I started out as a pastor and I was I was talking about access to the inner ring. Like you've never met this family but they call and they're like we need a pastor at the hospital right now because our young child is in the ICU. Or I mean I was doing funerals of people who have died of AIDS at like 25 years of age and you're um this would have been like mid 90s. I at a young relatively young age found myself in the front row seat for extraordinary pain. Right. Um, and I remember I would be, I'd be at the hospital with a family whose son had just ended his life, but then I would drive from the hospital home to my young family for dinner, and I'd be sitting there at dinner having been 30 minutes earlier. Right. Um, and I remember these moments of realizing, wait, this is strange. Instead of bringing me down, I'm feeling the pain and the loss, and I'm feeling for that family but my gratitude for the this strange, exotic, mysterious gift that we all have has just, I, I am finding a strange joy that's slowly coming up, but it's like a hard-won joy. Right, right. Um, and it made the more suffering over the years that and pain that I was attuned to as a pastor and friend, the more it somehow created this lightness. I talk about the... The lightness after the heaviness. Right. Uh, right. Sure. And those wounds become our gifts. Yeah. I mean, look, I told you about my mother. My mother was a huge absence in my life. So we look at me later, like some of the people that have meant the most to me, that I've interacted, who have helped me so much. Marianne Williamson, Louise Hay, Mother Teresa, Elizabeth Taylor. Obviously, I have a thing for strong women, right? So, but you, that you just gift, inter- Elizabeth Taylor and Mother Teresa. I know, all in the, in same, the same thing. Sentence. And <laughs> I feel like I knew the best of them. Yeah. I knew that, you know, I knew the Elizabeth Taylor that was bringing me in to help people dying, who she was paying for care and didn't tell anyone. There are amazing stories about her. That's the Elizabeth Taylor I've I knew. That. Huge, That's, I didn't huge know the heart. movie star. I knew that Elizabeth Taylor. Who helped a lot of people right. very quietly. 
And Mother Teresa, who was so kind to my first book, The Needs of the Dying, I mean, she really helped put me on the map. One of the things I remember in our last meeting, she said to me as I was leaving, she said, pray for me, please pray for me. And I'm kind of like, Mother Teresa wants me to pray for her. You got the Pope. But in Mother Teresa's world, my prayers and my God were the same as everyone else's. Mm. I mean, there was just a groundedness to her and a happiness. Mother Teresa was that. Mother Teresa, who lived in the gutter most of her life, bringing people out and helping them die in their last moments, was literally the happiest person I've ever been with. You would feel, there. you know how you can be with someone, you feel the anger radiating, the unhappiness. Yeah, ra- yeah, yeah. Mother Teresa, the happiness radiated off of her. And, and a small physical frame. Oh, tiny. And yet, like, her energetic body was just... Right. So were all of them. Marianne Williamson, they're, they're all oh, yeah, that. They're yeah, all... Yeah. Mar- Marianne's like a blast right. of, of energy when right. she walks in the room. Kubler-Ross, little small oh, same lady. Thing. Little small lady. A small lady, but when she walked in oh the room... Oh, my God. Booms. Lit up the room. Booms. Fascinating. So think about it. You know, part of my work is that if I can help in a plane crash, I can help in the disaster of your relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I can help you through that disaster. And part of it is I realize your marriage that just broke up or your relationship that just ended, that is your disaster. I don't minimize that. I don't go, oh my God, it's a divorce. There's people dying every day. No, I get that's your pain. Yeah. I'm here to help you with your pain, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know there's happiness beyond that pain. So um, the new book, You Can Heal Your Heart. Thank you, by the way, for this yeah, copy. Welcome. Um, tell me about what's what drives this book. This is about Louise Hay and I wanted to write about how You know, we cannot just get through grief, but you can find happiness. You can heal those old wounds. So it's really about taking us beyond feeling the grief, but finding the happiness after, after that breakup and healing those patterns and how to apply a lot of her work, affirmations and things like that to grief. Mm -hmm. How do you help to heal that? So that's a lot of the work we did. By the way, if you want to just read a couple of the first chapters, you can go to youcanhealyourheart.net and just check out the book, see if it's for you. Oh, fantastic. And um, also grief.com is your site? Grief.com. And, and if people also want to just sort of want to know the basics of grief, they can go to aboutgrief.com. And there's a free 15-minute lecture there. You can just sort of see what that's about. And you're touring now. Where you... 80 cities this year. Oh. 80 cities. <laughs> My second home is an airplane. You're doing 80 cities. And these are the events where the hotel staff say, why was everybody laughing? Right, why was everyone laughing? Right. I do one on death and dying. Mm -hmm. I do another one on you can heal your heart about breakups, divorce. We walk through breakups, divorce, pet loss, death, and help you move, see how they're related, and see how you can find happiness again. And you'd mentioned infertility. Infertility, that's a loss of a dream. Mm. You were going to be the mother who had a biological child, and that dream is no more. So you have to grieve that. It doesn't mean you can't have kids. It doesn't mean you can't be a mother. But that, but particular, that particular dream, dream you have to let go of. And, and little girls get this from, you know, as you're a child, you're, you're, it's inundated you're going to be a mother. And it doesn't happen for everyone. And you help people walk through that? Walk through that. Because you have to grieve it 
to get to the other side of it, to figure out, are you never going to be a parent? Are you going to look into adoption? Are you going to look into in vitro? What are you going to do? You have to grieve it. You have to go through it. You can't go right to the solution mm-hmm. because many times you're left with some, like you said, triggers or some old grief there. There's something you're still carrying right. around. You're still carrying yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Robcast. Great being with you. Great I, uh, being with you. You are so inspiring. And I love the clarity with which you wade into things that for so many people, it's just a big, the, the grandmother died, their mother passed away, they sat by the, it's just a giant hairball of vague. And you bring this, this very loving, grounded clarity to it and that's just so inspiring so everybody um books website lecture tour all that um the one and only david kessler thank you great great to be with you and meet everyone grace and peace everybody